The reading of Scripture for this morning is taken once again from the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be reading the second portion in Luke. Last week we dealt with uh, Luke chapter 1, the verses 1 to 4. And now we'll be reading through the verses 5 to 25. And you'll be able to find that on page 1177 of your pew Bible. Page 1177. The Word of God. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because... Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself for five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you wait for in expectation? What do you look forward to with anticipation? I know some of you young people here from Harvest are eagerly looking forward to a certain Reformation night play. You're excited to be able to show everyone what you've been working on for a little while now. 
Others of you may have a birthday or a holiday that you're looking forward to. Maybe you're thinking ahead to the candy you'll get when the Dutch celebration of Sinterklaas rolls around in less than four weeks. For you parents, maybe you have a special holiday coming up. Or maybe those of you who have been working long and hard hours all summer are just looking forward to the days when winter rolls around, the hours will be shorter, and you can breathe again. You'll have sleep and quality time with your family that you've had to leave by the wayside. Whatever the case is, many of you, if not most of you, are looking ahead to something with anticipation. And I think we'll, we're all agreed that to look ahead in anticipation is a good thing. But what if you reach a time when you're anticipating something, when you're eagerly looking ahead to something, and that something just never seems to come? There's something that you've put your hope in, something you're expecting, and yet it still hasn't arrived. It just doesn't seem to be panning out. For some of you, it might be one thing or another. For some of you, you might be especially reminded of this with regards to the recent shooting, again, in Texas last Sunday. A gunman walked into a church and opened fire. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Let all of this be over. And yet life still seems to be going on in the way that it always does. When bad things happen, do we continue to anticipate? Or do we give up? Today we'll be looking at that under the following theme. In the hope of the Messiah, first, the people wait in patient expectation. Then we'll see God answers at the hour of prayer. And third, that God sends a sign that he is on the move. Now, last week we spoke about the opening words of the Gospel of Luke. If you were here, you may remember how Luke intended to collect and organize an orderly account based on eyewitness sources of the life and times of Jesus. And he did this in order to grant certainty to those things which the people had been taught. The people receiving this Gospel have been taught doctrine about Jesus Christ. But now he's putting forward more about who Jesus Christ is. As this is the case, Luke starts off his history by setting the stage of Jesus' life. He begins with a little kingdom, the little kingdom of Judea, in the final days of the rule of the fierce and foreign king Herod. The setting is in a tumultuous time for the people of Israel. They think back, they read back in their history, and they're reminded of the times when Israel was self-governed. They remember the times when they felt like they were a nation of consequence, that they were a regional power. They remember their glory days under one of their greatest kings, King David, when the borders of Israel were expanding at a tremendous rate. In those days, it felt like God's favor was shining on them richly. Everywhere they turned, their enemies fell before them. God had even promised about King David, his seed I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Psalm 89. True, 
they had fallen away. And they had been sent into exile as a punishment for abandoning their God. They had even been under the thumb of the Persians for a time. But even so, even throughout all that, you had governors like Zerubbabel who could trace their lineage all the way back to King David. It seemed like this promise was ongoing. Even in the time of the Greek conquests, many of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, who were the next body of rulers that stepped up to lead, many of those leaders in the Sanhedrin could trace their lineage back to David. These people were descendants of David. God had allowed the house of David to remain in positions of authority like a a flickering flame, pointing to the hope that they could have in his promise of a messianic kingdom, a kingdom whose throne would stretch out into eternity. But now, now in, in the setting of our book here, to the Jews it would have felt like This was just not meant to be. In his efforts to take control, King Herod had not too long ago put an end to that thought. Those last men who had been in control, the members of the Sanhedrin, had all been slaughtered. He had made every effort to destroy the power of David's house. He was terribly paranoid of any challenge to his power and put down any hint of rebellion with vicious force. Now, of course, we do read about the Sanhedrin later. They were rebuilt. But that wouldn't have been what was fresh in the minds of the people. They would have been thinking back to that slaughter of so many members of the house of David. Was this the end of the dream of the people? Was their flame of hope snuffed out? Was God's promise of a messianic kingdom that would come through the line of David ended? There seemed to be no sign of this forerunner who was supposed to announce the coming of the kingdom. There seemed to be no sign of anything. There was silence. 400 years of silence from the final prophet to now. Have you ever experienced this, brothers and sisters? That your hope seemed destroyed and your carefully laid up plans seemed to have come to nothing. They may have even been good plans, plans in which you hoped and wished to serve the Lord, but they've changed now. Maybe because of some event. Maybe it's because your college professors went on strike or your health has deteriorated or your job has changed, your life situation has changed. What do you do in these times? At this time, this particular moment in history, we're introduced to a man named Zacharias. Zechariah, for some of you who have other translations. He's a man who has had his own share of sorrows. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth, and they were a good couple. Luke describes them as both being righteous before the Lord, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, of course, we're not given to understand that them being declared, uh, 
understand that as them being declared righteous in the sense that they were somehow perfect before the throne of God of their own accord. But they're blameless in the sense of Psalm 1. People who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They're blameless in the sense of Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We sang about that. The man whose sins are covered in the sight of heaven. The Lord looks upon him, blameless. These are people who are constantly walking in repentance and faith. They are blameless in relation to the covenant, being and walking close to God and loving His statutes. And where they fall short, using the purification that's offered by the covenant to find forgiveness with God. Their faith walk is concrete for them. It's seen in consistent acts. They're visibly living out the commands of God in his community. Luke is pointing them out to his leaders saying, you know the type. An older couple that you respect in your community. People who are close to God. And who are seen as and known to be that way. They're salt of the earth types. Faithful saints. Approved in their walk. That's the kind of people they are. That's what Luke is saying. But despite all of that, they struggled with sorrow. They're the kind of people who you would see in church and you would think if anyone would make good parents, it would be them. And yet they weren't blessed with children. You can imagine that they had prayed and prayed Having children in those days was seen as such a rich blessing and a reward from the Lord. And being denied that was usually supposed to be a sign of God's disfavor. Now that clearly wasn't the case with them. How could it be? Their love was so evident. Luke had just made that point. So Luke brings his readers around to see it for what it is. The simple tragedy that it is. It's not a punishment. It's just a source of sorrow. And if you've ever talked with a couple that has always wanted their own children but were never able to have them, you know that's a desire that never goes away for them. When they see children, when they see their friends and family having kids and then grandkids, they're reminded of that again. As they waited, and they waited, it seemed like God was not answering their prayers. It seemed that he had other plans for them. And when old age made certain the door that was already barred by barrenness was closed, it didn't keep them from prayer. They still kept on praying. They continued in faithful service and calling on the Lord, bringing the prayers of the people before their God. 400 years had passed since God had last given his people a fresh revelation. Now the scepter of the tribe of Judah was broken. The royal dignity of Judah had crumbled. A couple bent in sorrow and a people broken in spirit cry out to the Lord. They look to their God who has proven in their past to be faithful. And they cry out to him to make his faithfulness known once again. to break into their existence and shower them with love and mercy as he has in the past. 
Yet there was silence. No one was certain what the outcome would be. But they still remembered. They still remembered the mercy of the Lord in the past. We see in our passage here that day after day, it was a faithful remnant who came to the Lord in prayer. Day after day, sacrifices continued to be offered. Their world might be in chaos. A foreign and evil king might be in charge. Hope might seem slim, yet they come faithfully to call on God in prayer because they know that their God is faithful. When trials are great and sorrows seem when, when trials are great and God seems far away, remember this and continue to call on Him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now it comes to pass during these tumultuous times that Zechariah was called up for service in this temple. And something special happened. Zechariah was one person. He was uh, of the division of Abijah. It was not one of the better known divisions. He was just one man of 18,000. Just one man of the 24 divisions that were tasked with service in the temple. Each division was broken up into a series of orders. These were smaller groups within those greater divisions. And each order would stay at the temple for a week at a time, carrying out their duties at the temple. It would be Zechariah's job, with the other priests, to take care of the daily routines that the temple worked through. Sacrificing animals, cleaning up, doing acts of purification, putting bread on the table of showbread in the temple, and a host of other tasks. But today was a special day for Zechariah. Today, he would have the opportunity to pray before the Lord at the altar of incense. The altar of incense was an altar that was placed right against the curtain that covered the entrance into the most holy place. So you'd have the outer court of the temple, and then you'd have the inner court, and then you'd have the temple building itself, which was divided into the holy place and the most holy place within that. So this would have been the altar that's placed right against that curtain there that divides the entrance into the most holy place. He would have the incredible privilege of being able to bring the prayers of God's people before God himself. Because this most holy place was the place that represented the throne room of God. He would be allowed to come here to offer incense and then to return to the people with God's blessing. This was an event that only happened once in the lifetime of a priest. Every time your order came up to serve in the temple, the privilege of being able to carry out this task was assigned by the drawing of lots. It would probably be a bag of marked or colored stones, each one being marked specially, with, with one being marked specially. And if you drew that one from the bag, well, then it would be your time to go. And if you had already sacrificed incense once, you were not allowed to be part of the drawing of the lots again. 
this was a big deal for Zechariah. This would be considered as the greatest ministry in his career. He goes in. Standing before the altar of incense, he begins to do his work. He casts on the mixture of incense that's specially prepared just for service in the Lord's temple. Nobody else was allowed to copy that recipe. You find that in the book of Exodus. No one else was allowed to copy that recipe for the incense in the temple. It was special. So he places that on the altar and the smoke begins to rise up. He remains there praying for the people. The smoke going up as a sign of the prayers of God's people rising up to heaven. A sweet-smelling aroma to God. And then, at the hour of prayer, at the moment of prayer, God acts for his people. You may have people ask you, what's the point of praying? If God wants to do something, won't he do it anyways? But God chooses to work through this means. He chooses to use the means of his people calling on him in prayer to carry out his will. And this is vivid proof for Zechariah. God hears our prayers and they are meaningful to him. There is suddenly an angel that appears beside the altar. And at the sight of the angel, we read that Zechariah is troubled and fear fell upon him. It's a terrifying sight. There's literally an angel of God standing there right in front of him. Now you have to remember that this isn't something that has happened for the last 400 years. This is something that is truly remarkable. But more than that, the angel has a remarkable message. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, this is not to cause us to think that while he was at the altar, he brought up a prayer for the people, and then sent up a quick personal prayer of his own. Because that wouldn't have been appropriate. That wouldn't have been allowed. And this, him being the person who he was, and him being there doing this once-in-a-lifetime task, he wouldn't have done that. We can also see later on by his response how it's clearly not the case. But what the angel is referring to here is his prayer over long years. And not only will this child be born in answer to an old man's prayers, but he'll be born in answer to the prayers of the nation. And those are the prayers that are going up by the altar of incense there. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, 
to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a son, and he would be special. Marked as set apart by his diet and action. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. God's naming of him, giving him a name, showed that this child would be important for his work. The coming baby would work powerfully for the Lord on behalf of the people. God is on the move. God is going to act for his people. He heard their prayers. He knew their sorrows. He remembered his promises and he listened. Brothers and sisters, God is a God who hears prayer. Be constant in prayer. Speak to your Father in heaven. He understands your sorrow. He hears your prayers. And when your wounds are so grievous, your sorrows are so great that you can't find the words to express them, direct your thoughts to heaven all the same. For the Holy Spirit will even then intercede with groans that words can't express. God hears at the hour of prayer. Call on him. Startled by this proclamation, Zechariah at first responds in disbelief. You can see that here. With his question, he says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. This is one more reason to doubt that he prayed for a child then and there. It wasn't something that was immediately on his mind. Forgetting for a moment the stories of Abraham and Sarah with their long years of barrenness that were healed, he doubts. And he asks for a sign. How shall I know this? The angel almost responds to him in a sense of disbelief. He says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and who was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. How much more of a sign do you need? I stand in the presence of God. He shouldn't have needed a sign. And he says, but behold, you will be mute, and you will not be able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Zechariah will not be able to speak until everything is fulfilled and then the angel disappears. Outside, the people are getting restless. It doesn't usually take this long for a priest to fulfill his duty, so it's understandable that they're trying to figure out what's going on. Inside, Zechariah turns around bewildered. He's gone in with great anticipation, with great reverence and great awe. This would be something that would naturally have been expected to be a, an amazing experience, to have the privilege of coming to the Lord in prayer on behalf of the people. But he never would have expected something like this. The greatest day of his life has just been eclipsed by something much greater. What would have been the pinnacle of his priestly career, right in the twilight years of his life, has just become the beginning of something much greater. He heads back outside to the people. He's got to finish after all. So he appears before them. 
It's unclear whether or not he even bothers to stretch out his arms and give that blessing that he would have given after the sacrifice. The blessing with those words of the uh, Aaronic priesthood. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's unclear whether he brought that forward. But what is clear is that the people understand that something happened. There's confusion. He gestures and manages to get across to them that he's seen something great, but he remains speechless. He's not able to talk. And so the people leave in awe and wonder. Nothing like this has ever happened before. They would be asking each other, is God on the move again? Will God act? What's going to happen? As for Zechariah, he completes his days of service in the temple, and he returns home to his wife. His work is done. And in the days that follow, Elizabeth conceives, and then she withdraws from the community. Much can go wrong in the first few months of pregnancy, and she knows that, so maybe she's a little bit worried. But she's content. The Lord has taken away my reproach among the people. She's expecting his son. And he will do mighty things for the Lord. God acts, brothers and sisters. Here he announces the coming of a great person. A great and mighty prophet who will be the forerunner of the long-expected Messiah. God is on the move here in Luke chapter 1, working to fulfill all the ancient promises of his covenant. He's holy and pure, and yet he looks on a broken people in love, and he deals with them in tender mercy. He acts on behalf of his people, and he does that today just as much as before. But while the people in Luke 1 only saw a shadow of the events that were coming, we have the great fullness of those events here. Christ has come. He's accomplished his work. And now he sits and he reigns in heaven. Through him, we don't have to approach God through a priest, speaking, using smoke, and speaking through a veil. We can come in through Jesus Christ to the throne room of God itself. Through Jesus Christ, who's come in response to the work of this prophesied forerunner, we have direct access to God. And this God continues to act. History seems to be progressing slowly from our perspective, and we ask, God, where are you at? But never doubt that he is there. That he sees, that he hears, and that he's on the move. All of history is moving towards one final goal. All the nations are being prepared for that final act when Jesus himself returns in glory. So keep praying. Keep crying out to God. Don't give up. Eagerly anticipate his coming. Pray for your individual needs, for God hears. And pray for the preparation for the second coming of the Messiah because God is on the move. Amen.